Well, from time to time, I'm sure many of us reflect on God's surprising providences and how he's led us thus far. We might, from time to time, use that phrase, who'd have thunk? Uh, Pastor Ron and Drew and I were in my study this morning. We were trying to think of the etymology of who'd have thunk, and we thought maybe it's a contraction of a contraction, and it has to be a southern slang saying as well. So, uh... Maybe if you're not from the South, you don't ever say that. But some people say, who'd have thunk we'd start a business and that it would take off? Or who'd have thunk we'd have so many kids? Or who'd have thunk we'd live in Albuquerque of all places? Let me just actually see a show of hands. How many of you, maybe 10, 20 years ago, had no clue you'd be living in Albuquerque in 2017? Go ahead. Yeah, that's about half. That's more than first service. Well, there might be very difficult surprises that cause us to reflect like that. Who'd have thunk we would lose a kid? Who'd have thunk you'd have to fight cancer so young? And there are sweet surprises. Who'd have thunk I'd get to marry her? Or that we'd have them, or that we would be here, or that God would do this or that? Who'd have thunk I'd be a Christian? And my sins would be forgiven. Well, here we are. Each of us is a unique composite of all these turns and decisions and events and steps. Mysteriously, there are many decisions we make which lead us to where we are right now and who we are. And yet, God sovereignly orchestrates who we are and where we are. Not just the big things, little stuff too. All the events, all the steps, all the decisions, and sometimes overruling our decisions. Proverbs says, a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Well, turn with me, if you would, to Acts 16, if you have a Bible with you this morning. We're in Acts chapter 16. We're getting back to a study of the book of Acts after just a couple of weeks of a break. We're picking up in Acts 16 where I think we see God working in surprising ways, who to thunk it kind of ways. There are a couple of instances here of God's surprising grace, we might call it. Now we left off a few weeks ago, if you were with us, with Paul and his companions traveling north, and west on a map through Asia Minor to deliver the message of the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council back in Acts 15. The Jerusalem Council came to the conclusion that Gentiles don't need to become Jewish in order to become Christians. They just simply get in by grace and grace alone and through faith alone. Paul and his Companions are traveling about, sending word to churches, no doubt spreading the gospel as well to those who haven't yet heard it in those regions. However, we saw a couple of weeks ago, mysteriously, they are sometimes divinely prohibited from going in certain directions and preaching the gospel in certain places. Remember that? We saw the geographic redirection of God, though, surely had good purposes. It was for the spread of the gospel. It surely had good purposes for a woman named Lydia. 
who we're introduced to this week. Look down in your Bibles, Acts 16, starting in verse 6. And when they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where, there were supposed there was, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me faithful to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. We'll stop there. Now, we covered verses 6 through 10 the last time we were in the book of Acts together. We saw a grouping of gospel partnerships at the end of chapter 15 and on into chapter 16. We saw Timothy join the group in verses 1 through 6. Then we saw Luke, apparently, the author of the book of Acts, join the group in verses 7 through 10 or so. It's with that one word, we, we're now first person plural is being written down in the book of Acts, telling us that the author is now with the traveling group in the Apostle Paul. So we've covered that already, but let's not move on past verses 6 through 10 just yet. I think there's some more meat on the bone that I want us to consider. Let's consider the surprising redirection that happens in verses 6 through 10, and then a surprising conversion that happens in verses 11 to 15. So first, a surprising redirection. Now, there was nothing wrong with the Apostle Paul having a plan and then setting out on that plan. There was nothing wrong with Paul deciding to go to certain cities and churches with the message of the Jerusalem Council or to spread the gospel here or there. In fact, I think it would have been wrong for Paul to passively sit and wait and do nothing until he got some sort of divine, miraculous marching orders about where to go. I think it would have been presumptuous for Paul to expect that God would give his itinerary like written in the sky or audibly in Paul's ear. As I said a few weeks ago, even in the miracle-filled book of Acts, the norm for decision-making is normal decision-making. They decided to do that. They, they determined to go there. They, it seemed good to them, it sometimes says, to do this or to do that. The exception is the miraculous, the angelic voice, the, the word from a prophet, that kind of thing. They're there, no doubt. 
You've got Paul's encounter with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus in chapter 9. You've got Peter's vision of the sheet and the food in chapter 10, which leads him on a mission to Cornelius' house. You've got the Holy Spirit speaking words of a commission for Paul and Barnabas in chapter 13. That's special. Let's not minimize it. But even there with chapter 13, it's interesting to me that the Holy Spirit says who's supposed to go, Paul and Barnabas, what they're supposed to do, they're supposed to take the gospel, they're supposed to go. It doesn't say where exactly. And that doesn't lead them to frozen uncertainty while they wait for God to give the next step, as if, as if life is simply a giant scavenger hunt where you always keep getting the next clue and the next clue and the next clue and on to the next destination. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes God expects us to make decisions. God miraculously revealed that Paul and Barnabas should be a missionary team, and it was up to them to figure out what's next, and so they went to Cyprus. The will of God in the Bible is spoken of two different ways. I think two, not three. I think the Bible speaks of God's revealed will. That's scripture. That's what he says about what we should do and what we should not do. And then there's secondly God's sovereign will talked about in scripture. This is what will come to pass. This is what's going to happen or what he'll even allow, including evil. I don't see some other third kind of God's will for us, like some sort of ideal. And every decision is either inside that ideal or outside that ideal. I'll tell you what, you are already way outside that ideal. One decision at a time. You haven't read the tea leaves properly. You haven't, you haven't sensed his spirit or his nudging or, or the circumstances like you should. And so this idea of there being a, a third will of God, an ideal, is not in the Bible. And it's liberating to conclude that. Now back to Paul in Acts 16. I say again, there was nothing wrong with Paul making plans. There was nothing wrong with Paul setting out. And there would have been nothing wrong, uh, it, it would have been wrong rather for Paul to not make a plan and expect God to give him miraculous insight about what's next. However, in this instance, God did reveal something special. The first part of it isn't quite clear. Verse 6 they tried to go west, and they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? Well, I don't know. Verse 7 is even worse. They tried to go north and then northeast, and the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. We don't know how that was revealed. It could have been through prophecy, perhaps through an angelic messenger, or perhaps the circumstances were simply prohibitive. It's what we call in Scripture a, a closed door. And maybe only later, Paul and his companions realized that God was closing those doors in order to open another. They could conclude that because it, it wasn't just this forbidden stuff. Holy Spirit said no. But also, verse 9 and 10, there's a vision. Paul receives a vision of a man in Macedonia urging him to come over and help us. Help us spiritually. Bring the gospel to us into Macedonia. Not Asia Minor where Paul had been. Nothing wrong with staying there. And Paul will actually go back there later on. 
But Jesus is hitting the gas pedal on his plan to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so the vision says, come over the Aegean Sea. Come over to another continent. Come over, yes, to the Roman world still at that time, but it's the continent of what we call Europe. Jesus was escalating and elevating his plan to spread the gospel in the world. Now, none of us in this room are apostles. Most of us in this room are not missionaries, at least not capital M missionaries. Some of us in this room will never get a miraculous word from the Lord about what to do next. So how should we apply this passage? Well, I think we can learn from Paul and his example on some general principles. One, make good plans with Jesus at the center. Two, get busy. Head out. Get going. Whether that's to a mission field or to Monday morning work across the street. Third, be prepared for God to redirect for God to reroute, for God to reassign, for him to change your plans. Fourth, trust him. He knows best. He's good. The rewriting of our plans is sometimes painful. It is often mysterious, but it shouldn't lead us to having an upset faith or anger at God. It's often surprising, yes. It's often mysterious when God redirects our lives and where we find ourselves, when we find ourselves in circumstances we didn't anticipate. But it need not be problematic. It need not be troublesome for us. His grace has brought us thus far, and grace will lead us home. I think every Christian can look in the rearview mirror of their lives and maybe to some or less degree say, it's been hard, but he's been faithful, he's been good, he's kept me. I can trust him. On our best days, we know that. We never know what God will have next, though. We can be okay with that, and even good with it. That's not easy, it's a struggle, it's sometimes a, a wrestling match with our faith in our doubts. But we should learn from John Newton here, the writer of that hymn, Amazing Grace. He was one of the happiest pastors in church history, and he's a delight to learn from. I'm convicted and encouraged when I hear him say, when I hear a knock at my study door, I hear a message from God. It might be instruction. It might be a lesson on patience. But since it's his message... It must be interesting. Isn't that good? I wish I had that perspective on, on knocks on my door. Uh, at times I don't. By the way, if you need help on this issue of decision-making in the will of God, if, if you need liberation on this issue of decision-making in the, the will of God, there's a handy little book written by Kevin DeYoung, Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to God's Will. Or, here's the subtitle, the best subtitle I think I've seen. 
How to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, and writing in the sky. If you need this book, come see me afterwards. I'll give it to you. Secondly, there's a surprising conversion. Verses 11 to 15. A surprising conversion. Paul was given that vision to go to Macedonia, and so they went. The specifics were not spelled out, and so they chose to go to Philippi. A leading city in the Roman world, a metropolis really, with a well-to-do, sophisticated Roman citizenry. A surprising conversion is going to take place there. But there are actually some other surprises along the way before that. One surprise is that apparently there was no Jewish synagogue in this major city, Philippi. We can piece this together because Jewish tradition said uh, a synagogue needs at least 10 Jewish men in that city for there to be a synagogue. There's no mention of a synagogue here. Just women who gather outside the city down by the river to pray every Sabbath. There may be not even 10 Jewish men in Philippi. We don't know, but it seems like that's the closest thing to a synagogue they have. That's surprising. Remember that Paul's normal custom for evangelism is to go first into synagogues. He arrives in a city. He finds a synagogue. It's convenient to start there because they're going to read the Bible Someone's going to talk about the reading of the Bible, and Paul can be that person sometimes, and so he will conveniently get to talk about how Jesus is the fulfillment of Abraham, and he's the fulfillment of David, and he's the the prophet that Moses was talking about, and he has come. Paul can say, I've seen him. Synagogues are convenient places to start when evangelizing a city. There's no synagogue here in Philippi. He starts with a ladies' prayer meeting down by the river, the next best thing. And there he sat down and spoke to the women. And then shortly after, we're introduced to one of the women, only one, Lydia. We're told she's a seller of purple fabrics. Just that little bit of information leads us to conclude that she was likely wealthy, fashionable, And probably pretty independent. There's no mention of her husband anywhere in here. She's from Thyatira, a ways away, but she's living in Philippi, perhaps on business. She might be one of these kind of folks who have two homes. They need two homes because they're all over. And so it would seem like she's from Thyatira. Possibly has a second home in Philippi. A home large enough For a household, that's what it's going to say later on, a household, and a house large enough that it can also welcome Paul and his traveling companions as well for some time. We can also surmise that she's wealthy because she's a merchant of purple things, it says. Now, in our culture today, we don't give much thought at all to why a shirt is a certain color. We have preferences We can go to Old Navy, and if you want to get a polo, you'll probably have about 12 options of colors, but we give almost no thought to how'd it get that way. How'd they dye it? What what happens? Well, 
Now that we have synthetic dyes as of the mid-1800s, it's very easy to dye things. Again, it's cheap and we don't give much thought to it. But, But in previous times, before the 1850s, this was organic dye, biological dye, and it was hard to dye things. And certain colors were harder than others. Purple was, well, it was prized. And it's a regal color, as you can imagine. And so... This lady, Lydia, has somehow figured out the business of getting Thyatira fish that have this purple dye in them into clothes, and she's selling them and probably making a pretty penny. Again, she's fashionable, wealthy, independent, and that's surprising. This is the first convert to Christ on the European continent. A wealthy, Gentile, probably single, fairly independent, fashionable gal. You didn't see that coming, did you? You wouldn't see that coming reading the book of Acts for the first time straight through. It's surprising this is the first convert. And Luke wants us to know that. He wants us to know about her. He wants us to know who was converted here. And then he'll tell us how. How. It would seem like she's the only one. The only one who was converted that day from Paul's teaching. Luke doesn't follow up her conversion with one of his summary statements like he often does. Sometimes he'll say, so-and-so got saved, and the Lord added many that day to the Lord. That's not here. It's just her. Paul spoke to a group of women, and it seems as though Lydia was the only one who believed in Jesus, who received the message. So why her? Why there? They all received the same message from the same guy at the same place with the same barometric pressure. All the circumstances are the same. Why did she believe and others didn't? Well, Luke gives us four elements to conversion here, one of which will answer that question, why her? What happened? But the first is proclamation, verse 13. That's one element of conversion, proclamation. Paul spoke to the women. She heard, verse 14, what was said by Paul. What's he saying? Well, he's, of course, telling the gospel, isn't he? The gospel is the announcement of good news that Messiah, the Son of God in God himself, has finally come. And he's the answer. He lived righteously. He died sacrificially on that cross. He was raised victoriously and now lives forevermore. And so from heaven, he has all authority to forgive sins. And he offers forgiveness to any and all who will believe in him and call on his name. That's the gospel. Paul probably preached something along those lines there down by the river that day. And you have to hear something like that. You have to hear some of those details in order to be saved, in order to become a Christian. Proclamation is a necessary part of the conversion experience, of of becoming a Christian. In Romans 10, Paul says, how will they call on Jesus in whom they haven't yet believed? How will they believe if they haven't yet heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches to them? And so he preached. 
Paul knew about the words of Acts 4, that there is salvation in no one else besides Jesus, for there is no other name besides Jesus' name given among men by which you must be saved. This is why Paul left home in the first place. This is why Paul left his Pharisaical fraternity and all the safety that entails. This is why Paul was willing to face violent opposition. This is why Paul was willing to make the trek across the Aegean Sea in a boat to go to Macedonia. Because there, Christ isn't yet known. His name isn't known. And so there isn't salvation there yet. And so he must go. Proclamation is essential to conversion. But not proclamation alone. So secondly, there's illumination. And this is the big one. Verse 14. Illumination is the word I'm using for this phrase. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, what does it mean for her to pay attention? Did the Lord help her concentrate? Did the Lord give her a a five-hour energy and a shot of coffee? And and when she looked away when Paul was preaching, the the Lord snapped his, hey, over, over here, keep focused. No, it means far more than that. It means that the Lord opened her understanding, her will, her affections in order to receive the gospel. Not just get it, not just hear it, not just concentrate long enough for Paul to get through it, but for her to receive it or to respond to it as the NIV and NAS say. The Lord illuminated her understanding. He put a light into her dark heart. This is what 2 Corinthians 4 says. That we are born with darkened hearts, blinded by Satan. But here's the good news. The God who spoke creation light into existence from the very beginning of time, the God who said, let there be light, is the same God who speaks light into some hearts. To shine, here's what it says, to shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, to put heat and glory and truth of Jesus into people's hearts aflame. He lights up hearts that were previously darkened. He opens hearts which were previously closed. And that's all of us, by the way. That's all of us. We were all born not just committing sin or with a propensity to sin, but in bondage to sin, in slavery to it. Romans 3.11 says, No man seeks after God. You might say, it was a two-year process. It felt like I was seeking him. I, I sought him for a good long while. Well, but Romans 3.11 is here, and it says no man seeks after God. No woman either. No one seeks after God. That is, until he seeks them. God must initiate. So here we have two sides of one truth. There's our own natural inability to get God, to want him, to pursue him, 
to receive Jesus and see him aright. The other side of the coin is God's initiative, where there, after he initiates, we can see. He shines light. We see Christ for who he is, not for what our blinded, sinful eyes thought him to be before. Every Christian knows this experience. They know the before and the after. They know 1 Corinthians 1, that the message of Christ crucified is foolishness to Greek people, and it's a stumbling block to Jews, but to the called, it's the power of God unto salvation. How does the same message revolt and strangely warm and draw us in? Well, it's the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1, the chapter ends with this saying, that God saves in such a way that no flesh can glory in itself. No flesh can say, well, I'm a Christian because I was smarter. I'm a Christian because mom and dad were Christians. Or I'm a Christian because I went to a Christian church. Or I'm a Christian because I'm just a nice guy and I'm pretty sensitive for crying out loud. No. We've seen it in the book of Acts thus far. In chapter 13, it's those who were appointed to eternal life who believed. What's that mean other than what it says? In chapter 11, we learn that God grants repentance. It's a gift. So is faith. Now, yes, there's a responsibility. We've been seeing that in the book of Acts all over. Repent and believe. Here's what you must do to be saved. Repent and believe. And no doubt the Apostle Paul that day down by the river preached a message that ended with repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus in faith and faith alone. And no doubt Lydia would have said, that's what he said to do and that's what I did. He told me about Jesus dying for my sins and I said, that's it. He's the answer. This finally makes sense. I'm so glad he's come. I put all my eggs into this basket. I'm with Jesus. I decided so that day. And yet there's something more to the picture than just her own experience of things. What if we could sort of hold up a theological x-ray of her experience of conversion? What if somehow we could see the unseen of what's going on in human minds and hearts as they start to believe in Jesus? Well, I think that theological x-ray would show us something like 2 Corinthians 4. God shining light into dark hearts, pushing satanic darkness back, beaming on the face of Christ so that we see him, not as we did before, but now in truth and glorious, and we find him, dare I say it, irresistible. Some Christians don't like that word, that phrase, irresistible grace. I can understand because they think that means that God sometimes pulls and drags people to heaven against their will. But no one believes that. That's not true. What we mean when we talk about God's grace being irresistible is that God is 100% successful at wooing his people. He woos us. To use that word 
irresistible in some contexts isn't bad at all, but it is wonderful and pleasant. Those brownies are irresistible, you might say, and you're not offended that they're irresistible. You don't feel as though your will has been violated. In 1993 and 94 and 95, I saw a girl on my college campus and I found her irresistible. And I didn't say to her, hey, stop being so cute, would you? Stop being so pretty, quit doing cute things. It's, I find it irresistible and I don't like it. No, I loved it. I loved being drawn in like that tractor beam on Star Wars. Praise God. Praise God for illumination. Without it, you wouldn't be saved. You don't have it in you. Neither do I. Charles Wesley got it right. Long our imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. A third element of conversion isn't really what leads to conversion, but what flows out of it. We could call it identification. By that I mean baptism. We see it in verse 15. After Lydia responded to what was said by Paul... She was baptized. Baptism isn't necessary for conversion, but it necessarily flows out of conversion. Baptism isn't salvation, but it rightly portrays salvation. And those who have salvation want to portray it and talk about it. Baptism is the identification with Christ's death and burial and resurrection. It's saying to the world and all those around you, I'm putting my hope in that, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is, this is where I am leaning, and this is where I identify. I identify with him and with his people. It's what Christians do. They get baptized. It's one of the first things Christians do. It's the invariable rule in the book of Acts. There's belief, and then there's baptism. Belief is what's inward, and baptism is an outward expression of it. And so if you're a Christian who hasn't yet been baptized, can I let you know that if you've put that off for sinful reasons, Jesus can forgive those sins too. But I want you to feel sort of the weight of the misnomer of a non-baptized Christian other than the thief on the cross who really couldn't get to the baptismal waters very easily that day, everyone else has been baptized since Jesus came. That's what Christians do. Be baptized. Let us know how we can help. Email one of the elders or one of our staff members. Uh, our email addresses are on the website. Or call the church office. Let's get talking about your baptism if you're a Christian who hasn't been baptized yet. Then there's fruition. The last component of conversion is that it produces fruit. It leads to fruition. Not only did Lydia lead her household to Jesus, we'll talk more about household uh, as we get later on in Acts, by the way, just tuck that away. 
But not only did she lead her household to Jesus, but she insisted on showing hospitality to Paul and his men. I love it. Verse 15, she urged us to stay and she prevailed. Here's a wealthy woman with some significant means and she's using that means for the kingdom of God. Who knows whether she was the warm and welcoming type even before she came to know Jesus? That's possible. Or perhaps not. Perhaps she never opened up her house before. What we can say, though, is that this is now, whether it was part of her upbringing, whether it was part of her natural DNA or not, we can now say this is spiritual DNA. To show hospitality to support the mission, to care for God's people. In showing hospitality to the servants of Christ like she was doing here, she was participating in their overall work. This is what 3 John says so beautifully. It says, they've gone out for the sake of the name, so we would do well to support people like them, that we might be fellow workers for the truth. Who'd have thunk the lady in purple, the lady of purple, is a fellow worker for the gospel, and she now is the support outpost for the gospel mission to Europe. She'll be used mightily in days to come. She will probably, most likely, house the church of Philippi that will grow up here in this area, in this city. Right now, it's only one family. It was only one convert and then her family after that. But it's going to grow. Later on, Paul will write a letter to that church. It's called Philippians. You should read it today if you haven't read it recently. You should remember how warm it is, how engaging it is, how thankful Paul is. It is so familial. And all this started right here at this house Lydia's house but here at this moment in time in Acts 16 15 that great grand apostolic church house is just one family that's surprising isn't it I mean with the with the vision to go to Macedonia you might expect that Paul would land, preach the first sermon, and it would be like Acts 2. 3,000 get saved, or at least all of them that are there, and it's one. John Calvin says just one woman wanted to be a disciple of Christ that day, and she was a foreigner. With such results, who would not have thought that they had been foolish to have undertaken the journey but the Lord makes it look as though this work is humble and weak so that his power may eventually shine more clearly. It was good that the beginnings of the kingdom in Christ, in Philippi, were like this so that they might savor the humility of the cross. God surprises. Sometimes he surprises us with little. Sometimes he surprises us with much. The story of the gospel in Philippi is a microcosm of those truths. God redirects. God converts. You don't always see it coming. But when it's his work, it's the real deal. Sometimes God converts by the many. Sometimes he converts by a few. 
But each time, it is no less spectacular. It is no less miraculous. It is no less glorious. It is nothing short of God speaking creation power into dark hearts and producing gospel light so that we see Jesus and embrace him. Oh, I maybe Paul for a brief moment thought, huh, who'd have thunk? We'd come all this way and we'd only get one convert down at the prayer meeting? But Lydia surely didn't think that. For her, this was otherworldly, a game changer, a life changer. She couldn't have imagined when she woke up that morning that she would be introduced to the living Messiah and Son of God. And not only be introduced to him through someone else's talking, that she would actually encounter him. He opened her heart. What a day that was. What a wonderful surprise. I wonder if there's any way that's actually happening in this room right now for someone I wonder if maybe for the first time, you've maybe heard the gospel before, but maybe for the first time, you've, you've gotten past just mere intellectual questions and you wonder if you're right now having an encounter with the risen Jesus and this stuff is true and it's real and it's becoming more real to you and you are overwhelmed by it. Friend, that is a glorious thing. I'd love to know about that if that's happening to you today. I'd love to talk to you about that and if you say I, I don't think I'm a Christian but I'd like to be and I'm not sure the Lord is opening my heart I don't know what that's like well if you want to be well the Lord may sure be opening your heart this very moment you know if you want to come to Jesus if you want the forgiveness that's in his name if you want to be right with God on account of his son and what he did on the cross then Believe that God is doing something miraculous, powerful, and spiritual in your heart right now. And come. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, help us to marvel at what you've done, at who you are. Lord Jesus, help us to see and to increasingly see you more and more clearly. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for revealing it to us. We thank you for those who spoke the gospel to us, whether parents or a friend or an uncle or a pastor. We thank you for messengers, and we ask that you would make us better messengers. We pray we would be better messengers as we further stand in awe of what you've done for us. Many have said the gospel is simply one blind beggar telling another blind beggar where he found food. Well, help us, Lord, to be enthralled with that food and help us to speak of it often. Help us now as we sing praise to you for what you've done in our hearts to save us. Help us to rejoice. Help us to sing boldly. May it be our confession, our story, our testimony because of Jesus because of the power of your spirit, because of your marvelous grace. Amen.